0: We're grateful for John speaking for us last week on uh, Psalm 23. Today we come back to our study in the book of Job. As we saw the last time I spoke, Job is finished speaking. And now a new character enters the picture, someone named Elihu. We saw three things about this man uh, the last time I spoke. Who he was, what he had to say at the outset, and his place or his function in the book of Job who he is, we are told in terms of his heritage. He is the son of Barakel, which means God is blessed. He is the tribe of Buzz. Uh, Buzz is a nephew of Abraham, the father of faith. His clan is that of Ram. Um, I think the important thing to note about this man is that he does have, he comes from a line that is tied to Abraham, a line of faith. Um, He is a worshiper of God. His name and the name of his father identify him as such. Uh, He is actually related to Job. I think there are strong indications that he is. So unlike the three friends, this is a family member. This is someone who is a worshiper of God. And he wants to speak his peace. The second thing we noticed about him is that he is young. In verse number six, he says, I am young in years and you are old. That is Job and his friends. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. And the third thing, in terms of who he is, we spoke of his anger. Uh, in verses 2 through 5, there are at least four references to his anger. He is an angry young man, which isn't always a bad thing. Uh, youthful anger can really challenge the status quo. You know, you know, why do you do things this way? Well, we've always done it this way. And it is the young, I think, who oftentimes say, well, it doesn't have to be done that way. The problem is oftentimes they don't see the long view. Uh, But youthful anger is not necessarily a bad thing. He is angry because the dialogue between Job and his friends has degenerated into nothing. Basically, nothing has been resolved. Job has held on to his own innocence while, in a sense, making himself more righteous than God. The three friends have failed to answer Job. And they have nothing more to say. And so Elihu's like, okay, it's my turn. You people have messed us up here. Let me tell you what I think. And so he begins to speak and just quickly to review what we saw the last time. He begins by saying, it is not a person's age that determines their wisdom, but the spirit that is within them. And here it's specifically the spirit of the almighty. The four people who have spoken thus far are older than Elihu, but their age has not given them wisdom. He has the spirit of God, and therefore he will speak. And then he spoke about the nature of communication or good communication, that there needs to be openness and not prejudice. And we saw, and I, I just want to repeat this because we talked about this after the sermon afterwards. Uh, we, it just seemed to be something that struck us. You know, what are the principles of being a good listener or good listening? First of all, you let the other person speak. Bad conversation, one could even say modern conversation, is marked by all parties trying to speak at the same time. That people want what one author has called first strike capability. They want to get their words in there first and keep talking and not let the other person have anything to say. And uh, I mentioned if you ever watch CNN or Fox whenever they have these panel discussions, uh, it's it's a zoo. After a while I find myself turning the channel because nothing I can't understand what's being said because everyone is speaking at the same time. Another principle of good listening is you let the other person not only speak, but you let them finish. Uh, Oftentimes we let someone start, and in our minds we finish what they're going to say, and so we're ready to speak. And in fact, the way they finish may be quite different than what we anticipate. A good listener does not interrupt And in fact, in verse number 11 and verse 12, the first part, I waited while you spoke. I listened to your reasoning. Elihu was a good listener. And in a day when rudeness seems to be the rule of the day, um, I think we we have failed to appreciate that interrupting another person is actually rude. Did you know that? Have we forgotten that? That interrupting somebody is rude. I think we have lost sight of that. But one thing we talked about at the very end and after the service is that listening is oftentimes an act of faith. The reason oftentimes we don't listen is because we feel that what we have to say is more important than what the other person is saying. And you know what? It may in fact be more important. But it takes a real act of faith to say, I'm going to sit here and be quiet and let the other person finish. And I may not even get a chance to say what I want to say, but that's okay. That listening can be, and I think oftentimes is, an act of faith. The reason we interrupt so often is because we don't have faith, because we feel like if I don't hurry up and say what I have to say, this person will not get the point and and they'll be lost or they'll believe something that's not true and so, and so I need to speak right now no sometimes we just need to listen it is also an act of faith when we listen to what God has to say particularly when we realize there's a possibility that we may not understand what he is saying The church in our generation has many sins, but I think near the top of the list is that the church of God in this generation does not listen. We don't listen to God and we don't listen to the people around us. We're just too busy talking and telling everybody what we know. The third thing that Elijah spoke of is that passion is not wrong. Detachment is not to be uh, something one shoots for. And I think one of the gifts of the postmodern era, which I'm not happy about in the postmodern era, but this gift is a wonderful gift. It was in the modern era that people began to think of objective knowledge, that we could be detached and not involved. And and that's why people like us, by the way, who have religion, who go to church, uh, we are seen as we should not be allowed to speak because we're not objective. We're too involved. Well, Scholars in the postmodern era have argued brilliantly that everyone is involved, that no one is objective. And what Job's friends have done, in a sense, is sort of distance themselves from Job and now give these theological speeches. And Elihu's like, I'm sorry, I'm in this with my whole person. I'm very passionate about this. I'm going to tell you exactly what I think and not simply tell you something that I've thought about. Uh, My whole person will be involved in this. Then he spoke about the place of equality, not partiality. And this works its way out, as we see at the beginning of chapter 33. uh, He puts it into practice. He calls Job by his name. He says, "I, I listen, now you listen, and let me tell you what I have to say. Okay, lastly, then this will be the end of the introduction. There are different opinions as to Elihu's function in the book of Job. Some people see him as comic relief that he's sort of the buffoon of the whole book. Uh, I would suggest that there are two, two functions. First of all, Elihu prepares us for what God has to say, because God will speak pretty soon. Elihu prepares us for that. Um, What he has to say is not simply comic relief. It's not that at all. What he has to say is important. And this is seen in the fact that all the other friends are given three speeches each, Elihu has four. And these four speeches are not interrupted. He gives four speeches, one in a row. What he has to say prepares us for the coming of God. But I think beyond all things, his function in the book is this. Job basically called God out and said, God, listen, I'm innocent. Here, all these things I've been accused of, I've not done this. And if you want to accuse me, then you come down here and accuse me. Had God then spoken, it would almost be as though he was responding to Job's challenge. Instead, the writer of the book of Job has Job calling God out. And then we have these five or six chapters of Elihu speaking. And then God will speak. God is free. He is independent. He cannot be forced to do anything. Not by our pleas, not by our threats. God will not be forced into any situation. When God speaks, it's when he's ready. Not when Job is ready, when he is ready. Uh, and I think if nothing else, this, this is the great value of what Elihu has to say. Um, God is free. He will not be under obligation to any person. Looking at one commentator um, argues, and he's not the only one, a number of scholars argue that what we have here with Elihu, that this actually doesn't belong in the book of Job. And so in his commentary, he actually puts it in an appendix at the end of the book. This is what he says. It is my view that dramatically and theologically the speeches of the Lord that will come later must follow at this point. That is at the end of chapter thirty one. Our patience has been stretched to the breaking point and cannot be asked to endure another intrusion of human words. I think he's got it completely wrong. Dramatically and theologically, yes, we must wait for God to speak. And yes, our patience has been stretched. That's fine. God will speak when he's good and ready. God will not be forced into action. And so Elihu, I think, does us a great service here by filling up these chapters. They're important things, but if nothing else, filling up these chapters, and then God will speak. God is not speaking simply because he's been challenged. Today we come to Elihu's first speech. It begins in verse number 8 of chapter 33. He begins by repeating Job's case. This is how he understands uh, Job's complaint. Look, if you would, beginning in verse eight. But you have said in my hearing, I heard the very words. I am pure and without sin. I am clean and free from guilt. Yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on all my paths. Unlike the three friends, Elihu takes Job head on. Uh, He calls him by name. We saw that earlier. Um, We saw it last week. If you look at verse number one. But now Job listened to my words. And he takes on. This is what you said. This is your complaint. And and now let me answer that. If you remember, the friends always seem to be talking past him. Talking in theoretical abstracts about the wicked do this and the wicked do that. What they meant was Job. Uh, Eli he was like, uh, Job, you said this. I heard I heard you say this. This is what you said. That God had punished him without cause, that he had treated him like an enemy, that he had held him captive, that he had stalked his footsteps. Now comes the answer, beginning in verse number twelve. But I tell you in this, you are not right. For God is greater than man. Why do you complain to him that he answers none of man's words? Immediately, Job begins by telling him, or Elihu begins by saying, Job, you are not right in this. You are wrong. On this issue, you are not right. And Elihu does something very important here, and that is, he is able to separate the issue from the person. And the distinction, I think, is critical. Job's friends have confused the two. That based on the issue, they condemn the person of Job. And here, Elihu wants to make a separation between the issue of Job's suffering and why God has not answered and Job himself. Elihu sees the issue for what it is. Job has charged God with doing wrong. That's not a small thing. That is what he is going to address here in his first speech. Job, what you've done is not right. You have accused God of doing wrong. Because he tells him God is greater than man. In saying this, he's not simply repeating what we would all hold to, what the three friends would hold to. What he is saying is you cannot make God in your own image. You cannot somehow reshape God to conform to your own standards. I remember years ago, um, someone who was attending here showed me a bulletin from one of the local churches here. And uh, the pastor told a story that uh, apparently several weeks before, one of the women of the church had come to him and said, you know, I'm really not happy about this business of being made in God's image. I'm just not real happy about that. And he said, well, I want you to think about this. That God is made in your image. So she went home and then she came back the next week and she said, you know, I've been thinking about that and I like that. I like that, that God is made in my image. Well, you know what? That's the nature of being human that we don't want to be made in the image of the creator. We want the creator to be made in our image. And I think it is, in fact, the human temptation to somehow reshape God. First of all, he's infinite, and how do we get our minds around that? So let's sort of (laughs) cut him down to size, manageable size. Uh, And Job is guilty of doing this very thing. Years ago, there was a book published called that is entitled, Your God is Too Small, in which the, ar- the author argued that people have, in fact, reshaped God. So they see him as a policeman, for example, or a Santa Claus. I mean, what they've, did- they've done is they've reduced him to something that they can manage. This is what Job has done. For Job, God must answer him when he calls. Job calls, God must answer. And God must justify everything that he has done. Are you this way at all about the telephone? I'm, I think I'm getting better as I get old, older. Um, when the phone rings, do you run to answer it? Oh, I've got to go get it. Somebody's calling me. Uh, somehow, I think that's the way we view God. That God, we're praying now. Come on now, you need to answer us. And, and granted, Job's situation is desperate. He's lost all ten children. I mean, to lose one child is, is, is horrific, to lose all ten of your children. He's lost all his property. He's lost his health. Now he's lost his friends. Yeah, now would be a good time for God to speak. But we must be careful and Job must be careful in doing this. He's not right. He has somehow put God into a box to say, God, now you must answer to me. Job has complained that God is silent. But beyond that, Job is saying, "Okay, here is the form in which you must speak to me. I want a private audience with you. I want the right to cross-examine you, and you must answer all my questions. Well, you know what? That's not the way God works, and that's what Elihu wants to communicate to him. In fact, what Elihu tells Job is, you know what? God's been speaking to you all along. He hasn't been silent. You just haven't been hearing him. Look, if you would, beginning in verse number 14. For God does speak, Now one way, now another, though man may not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn man from wrongdoing and keep him from pride, to preserve his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Or man may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in his bones, So that his very being finds food repulsive and his soul loathes the choicest meal. His flesh wastes away to nothing and his bones, once hidden, now stick out. His soul draws near to the pit and his life to the messengers of death. God does communicate with people. Sometimes this way, sometimes another, sometimes through dreams, visions, sometimes by speaking in their ears terrify them, to warn them, sometimes through suffering. And he does this to prevent a person from going astray, from going into the pit. Now, some might say, well, Elihu, th- tell us something we don't know. This is not new information. Uh, the friends have spoken about suffering as having a divine purpose. Yes, but Elihu says something radically different from the friends, in that he argues that suffering can have a creative rather than a destructive purpose. And if we understand that pain has a purpose, I think in many ways it makes it easier to endure. I didn't come up with this analogy. Okay, so am not speaking about myself here, but uh, one author has compared the difference of the pain of childbirth, which is quite severe, but it can be endured because there's a baby at the end, and the, and the pain is forgotten, and there's joy. The author compares this with the pain of kidney stones, which I went through three separate episodes last year. Uh, apparently, having kidney stones and the pain of kidney stones has no creative purpose. Okay? There's no baby at the end. Okay, What you're hoping for at the end is no more pain. Okay? And, and how do you endure? Because you don't know when it's going to be over. Okay, if you're going to have a baby, your labor may go on, but eventually there comes a time when you're done. Okay? And with kidney stones, how do you know? And they say, and I don't know if this is true, that women after they give birth, they sort of forget the pain because they're so happy because they have the child. That's never happened to me with kidney stones, okay? I've never, I, I remember, I remember the pain, Okay. This is where it gets really tricky because when we speak of suffering, I think it is difficult. One author puts it this way. It is very difficult to get this right. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus spoke of two incidents that had happened recently in his lifetime, one in which Pilate, the governor, had killed some Galileans. Apparently they were sacrificing and and Pilate wasn't happy with him. The blood of the sacrifices, he mixed their blood with that. And then in Siloam, uh, a tower fell on 18 people and they were killed. And Jesus says, he rejects the idea that there is a cause and effect relationship between these people suffering or, or their sinfulness and why they died. In fact, he asked the question, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all Galileans? Do you think they were more guilty than all others living in Jerusalem? Then when we come to John chapter nine, uh, Jesus was walking with his disciples in Jerusalem and they see a blind man. And the disciples say, "Okay, question, master, cause and effect. Who sinned? Who did the cause here that he is blind? Did his parents sin? And that's why God is punishing them with a blind son. Or did he? And apparently they seem to believe in a previous lifetime that he had sinned before he was born in this life. Who sinned? Who did the cause that we have this effect? And in all of these situations, Jesus rejects the notion of cause and effect between sin and suffering. We need to be careful, and again it gets tricky, not to confuse cause with relationship. That there can be a relationship between our suffering and something good that can come from it. We can grow, we can learn, we can develop, we can mature. That's very different from saying that suffering is the cause of our learning, growing, maturing, developing, whatever. A person can, in fact, learn and grow and mature, but they do so not because of the suffering, okay, but because of their response to the suffering. That's why suffering doesn't have the same effect in every person's life. If you've lived any amount of time on this planet, you've seen that. That for some people, suffering produces in them a sweetness that is almost supernatural. It is the grace of God that they endure such suffering with such patience. Other people become so embittered by what has happened in their lives. So suffering, the cause and effect relationship of suffering, learning, uh, doesn't always work. And so rather than speaking of creative suffering, and and some people have written about creative suffering, that suffering creates things in you, I think rather we should speak of creative responses to suffering. And acknowledge that it oftentimes takes the process of time for us to understand that. In the episodes I mentioned of my kidney stones last year, I'm the pastor here, okay? I've been here for a while. If any of you had come up to me while I was in the midst of my suffering and said, Damon, God is trying to teach you something, okay? I'm not usually given to violence, but I might have smacked you, okay? And yet, you know what? Many Christians do precisely that with good intentions to their brothers and sisters. I think it is good that Elihu speaks now, after all of this dialogue, and not at the beginning. I think Job is now ready to hear what Elihu has to say. I don't think he was ready all those chapters before and all those speeches before. God can teach us through these situations, and he he brings them into our lives to warn us and to turn us from doing things that we should not do. But we're not always ready to listen. We're not always ready to understand. I think Job is on the verge of being ready to understand. Now we come to verses 23 through 30, in which Elihu speaks of a mediator. And let me just tell you at the outset, it is a difficult part of this chapter. Um, Elihu seems to argue for uh, the reality of a mediating angel, one out of a thousand, a man to tell him who is what is right, one who intervenes, one who has found a ransom for him. Follow along as I read this, and then we'll try to make sense of it. Yet, if there is an angel on his side, that is the side of one who is suffering, as a mediator, one out of a thousand, to tell a man what is right for him, to be gracious to him and say, spare him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for him. Then his flesh is renewed like a child's. It is restored as in the days of his youth. He prays to God and finds favor with him. He sees God's face and shouts for joy. He is restored by God to his righteous state. Then he comes to men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, but I did not get what I deserved. He redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, and I will live to enjoy the light. God does all these things to a man twice, even three times to turn back his soul from the pit, that the light of life may shine on him. There's several things to keep in mind in this particular section. I think in part it is a direct response to what Eliphaz had said earlier. Eliphaz in chapter 5 had said that there was no one, there was no angel, no holy one, who was going to help Job in this mess. And Elihu here just flatly contradicts him and says that's not true. Secondly, Job, in fact, had spoken about I need an advocate in heaven. I need a mediator. He said in chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives. I think the mediator that Elihu identifies here is the Lord Jesus Christ. But did Elihu know that? I don't think so. He is inspired here by God to say this. He has the spirit, the breath of the Almighty in him. Uh, He is speaking, I think, of things beyond his ability to understand. And so rather than get wrapped up in the details of what Elihu did know or didn't know, I think we should get to the main point of this section, and that is suffering is not a solitary matter. We are not alone when we suffer. And we need to embrace this truth. For Elihu, as he's listened to these men just go back and forth and back and forth, it seems to him so evident, first of all, that God has not been silent in these whole proceedings, that God's been basically yelling and no one's been listening. And secondly, that Job, for all his complaints that God has abandoned me, I'm left alone, it's like, no, you, no. You haven't been left alone. God is with you. In your suffering, there is one who is there with you. I think that this is something that we need to be reminded of from time to time. And perhaps when other people are going through suffering, that we could remind them in the right time, because people are not always ready to hear while they're in the midst of suffering I think Job is ready to hear look if you would at the last part of this chapter verse 31 pay attention Job and listen to me be silent and I will speak if, it, if you have anything to say answer me speak up for I want you to be cleared. but if not then listen to me be silent and I will teach you wisdom Job God's not silent and you are not alone do you get that? I'm not done talking, Job. Just listen, Elihu tells him. But understand that God is speaking. He's not silent. And he's there with you. Francis Schaeffer, years ago, one of his early books, entitled it, He is there, he is not silent. I think that's precisely what Elihu is saying to Job. God is here with you, and he has not been silent. You just haven't been listening. There are times when we need to know this. I think we need to know it all the time, but oftentimes in the midst of darkness, that's when we're most likely to forget these things. So I said, Elihu spoke of a mediator, one in a thousand, someone who had found a ransom. He's speaking of Christ. Does he understand that? Perhaps not. We have the benefit, the grace, that we live after the fact that God has sent his son into the world. One in a thousand. That is a unique one. Someone to provide a ransom and to, and to pull us out of hell. And to provide a salvation. And today as we have communion, we remember precisely that. That Jesus gave his life for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that our ears are filled with the sounds of this life. Silence is something that people no longer even desire. We even need background noise just so we can think, it seems. And as a result, oftentimes we do not hear you as you speak to us when things are going well, when things are not going well, oftentimes you seem silent to us. May we be reminded also that you do not leave us. You have promised I will never leave you or forsake you. And as we go through the good days and the bad days, through the times of joy and the times of sorrow, you're right there with us. You never leave us. We thank you for your great grace and salvation that you provided through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember his death today, and by your grace we'll continue to do so until he returns. We pray this in his name. Amen. You know, in reading through the Bible, have those parts that have the stories, the part that you can have for Sunday school lessons to tell the children. Then we come to the epistles or we come to, let's say, part of Exodus and Leviticus where you have all the rules and regulations. It very didactic and just a lot of information. And I think the modern age, in many ways, has rejected the place of story in, in human life. But, but stories are really important to us as human beings. And I think today what I want you to keep in mind as we have the Lord's Supper is that these two elements that we have tell a story. This isn't simply ritual. Uh, There's a story here. And it is interesting that as as Paul is writing to the Corinthians, it's the passage that we read when we have communion, he tells the story of how that Jesus on the night he was betrayed gave thanks and he gave them these elements. There is a story here. This isn't simply information. This isn't just a ritual, something to keep in mind. There is a whole story behind this. I think something that we should keep in mind. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand, please, as we sing the Doxology together? Mm -hmm. Praise God from whom all...